Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from... KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we will continue our reflections into these special topics. This is Special Topic Thursday that is tailored to your question. Basically, you send me your questions, and I seek to respond to those questions on air. Now, these questions can be those more classic apologetic questions, uh, just not with the Catholic faith, but even in a more broader sense, the Christian faith. Or it could be something that, uh, you know, there's just always been that one question that's bothered you about the Christian life that uh, is tied to who you are and your relationship with God. So maybe there's a question about spirituality. I am open to any and all questions. And if I don't have an answer for you, I'll get someone on here with me to help me answer that question. This evening, the subject matter at hand is once again Mary. We have already talked about Mary. In point of fact, the first Special Topic Thursday was a response to that hard saying, O woman, what have you to do with me? Now we spent a half hour reflecting into uh, that hard saying and certainly considering its larger context within the wedding feast at Cana. That was what, January 26th. If, if that topic interests you, go to my archive, go to joeholcraft.org, Click the Shows link button there and go to January 26th in my archive, and you'll find that, that program there titled, Oh Woman, What Have You to Do With Me? And then also on May 25th, I got the question, if Mary is so important, how could she possibly lose her son? Which <laughs> is also losing God, right? Because Jesus is the Son of God. Well, we tackled that question for an hour and a half and more broadly also considered the finding of Jesus in the temple. This evening is going to be about the Assumption, and we are going to talk about the solemnity of the Assumption because, of course, this past Tuesday, uh, the Catholic Church celebrated the great solemnity of the Assumption. So I did get that question, and I thought, hey, let's take it up. And that question was, what are the biblical foundations for the Assumption of Mary? So we are going to get into sacred scripture because, as you've heard me say before, Every single teaching of the Catholic Church, at least in its seed form, right, is in sacred scripture. Now, that being said, before we get into the biblical foundations, what have we said about sacred tradition, the other mode of transmission? That is equally important. Why? Because Paul says as much in 2 Thessalonians 2.15 and elsewhere, when he says, Stay steadfast to the traditions which have been handed on to you by word of mouth or by written letter. Right? So the early Christian church was bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, just not through the written word, but also by word of mouth. In point of fact, we don't have <laughs> one single letter written until roughly 52 AD in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So you have roughly 20 years of a salvific sacramental hierarchy. Okay, what does John say at the end of his gospel? If you were to take all the libraries in the whole world, 
they could not account <laughs> for everything that the Son of God did when he is here on earth. So sacred tradition, insofar as it is that oral transmission of truth, is very, very important. And I speak to this because when you start getting into the more formal definitions, especially as it relates to uh, Marian teaching, it is sacred tradition bearing witness to a particular truth. And now you may ask the question, well, why isn't it just point blank in this passage or that passage? Well, my friends, two things are going on. First of all, very few people were accept accepting the message of Jesus Christ, so I can't even begin to imagine that they would also accept marrying who she was, the mother of God. But secondly, Jesus Christ himself did just not reveal everything that he had in store, right? Bit by bit did he reveal to the apostles. And over the course of 2,000 years, does he continue to disclose himself in and through the church in the light of the Holy Spirit, okay? We celebrate Pentecost as the birthday of the church because we can bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ because of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so very, very important theological point to be had there. Only in light of the gift of the Holy Spirit can we even begin to grasp the significance of what Jesus Christ has come to establish. In his sacramental life, yes, but even more specifically in our relationship with him. So, here we have this teaching come out in 1950 on the Assumption of Mary. And I would put the teaching of the Assumption of Mary coming out of sacred tradition in 1950 in this way. Simply, it was the right time. You know, church is Holy Mother Church. Paul raises up this image of the church as mother. And the church, like mothers who are pregnant, have life within her. And when the time is right, the church, who is mother, gives birth to a particular teaching. In 1950, it was the Assumption. And again, as we will get into, the teaching on the Assumption isn't the church going all crazy in 1950. No, it is bearing witness to the truths of Jesus Christ, the truths we find in divine revelation, sacred scripture. So, Pope Pius IX in 1950 defined the Assumption of Mary in the following statement, the Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Now, to your question, what evidence is present in the sources of divine revelation, specifically sacred scripture, for the doctrine of Mary's glorious assumption? Well, we could say that a seed of the doctrine of Mary's assumption certainly is found in Genesis 3.15. By the way, I am drawing from Dr. Miravelli's introduction to Mary, the heart of Marian doctrine and devotion. And for those of you who might be curious about what I'm talking about here this evening, you can certainly pick that book up. Just go to Amazon.com and you will have no problem finding that book, Dr. Mark Miravelli, Introduction to Mary, the Heart of Marian Doctrine and Devotion so as to better understand more about what I'm talking about this evening. Uh, again, I'll be principally drawing from him. I had him as a professor in Steubenville, and he was an excellent professor. Anyhow, as he goes to Genesis 3.15, let us go to Genesis 3.15. Why? Because in Genesis 3.15, what we have is a foreshadowing of Mary 
intimately sharing in the same absolute victory of her son over Satan. What do we read? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Accordingly to St. Paul, we read in Romans chapters 5 to 8 and also in Hebrews chapter 2, the consequence of Satan's seed, evil, are what? Sin and death. And when we talk about death, bodily corruption, right? So therefore, Mary, who shared in her son's victory over Satan and his seed, would have to be saved from both sin and death or corruption. Now, we're going to get into the Immaculate Conception this evening because you can't understand the Assumption without first understanding the Immaculate Conception because certainly Mary triumphed over sin in her Immaculate Conception and certainly over death, specifically corruption of the body in her glorious Assumption at the end of her earthly life. So, (laughs) to really get at this, we do have to go back and look at what are the biblical seeds to the Immaculate Conception. And again, for those of you who don't know, the Immaculate Conception is that doctrine which proclaims Mary as conceived without any stain of original sin. And once again, here we can go to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall lie in wait for his seal. So, Since the seed of the woman is who but Jesus Christ, who is to crush Satan victoriously in the redemption, then the woman must in fact refer to, of course, Mary, mother of the Redeemer. Now, what's important here, my friends, is to appreciate the word enmity. The word is rich in meaning. It signifies in opposition to. So the enmity established between the seed of the woman which is Jesus, and the seed of the serpent, which is sin, and all evil angels and humans, is in absolute and complete opposition, because why? There is absolute and complete opposition between Jesus and all evil, right? I think we can all agree with that. In other words, the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan have to be in complete and total opposition to each other as depicted in the term enmity. Further, in the passage we see the identical God-given opposition or enmity given and proclaimed by God between the woman Mary and the serpent Satan. Mary is given the same absolute and perpetual opposition to Satan as Jesus possesses in relation to sin. You know, my friends, we have to appreciate who Christ is, right, in relation to sin, if we are ever going to begin to understand who Mary is. That's why any teaching of any Christian church has to start with a sound Christology. Christology simply meaning the study of Christ. So it is for this reason, this perpetual opposition, we could say, that Mary could not have received a fallen nature as a result of original sin. Why? Because any participation in the effects of original sin would place the mother of Jesus in at least partial, we could say, participation with Satan and sin, thereby, of course, destroying the complete God-given opposition as revealed in Genesis chapter 3. 
In the end, my friends, we are made to see that the opposition between Jesus and sin is paralleled by the opposition between the woman, Mary, and the serpent, Satan. Again, this tells us that Mary could not participate in the fallen nature because that would mean participating at least partially in the domain of sin, of reality to which God gave Mary complete opposition. Now, if that doesn't do it for you, okay, let us turn to the New Testament because we have, I think, a very strong, convincing case, at least if we're going to take sacred scripture for its word, for Mary's Immaculate Conception. And we find it in the inspired words of the angel Gabriel, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Luke one twenty eight. In this angelic greeting, in this angelic salutation, Mary's name is nowhere used. Rather, the title, full of grace, huh? full of grace, is used as a substitute for Mary's name, by the angelic messenger of God, the angel Gabriel. These angelic words, my friends, refer to what but a fullness of grace, a plentitude of grace that is part of Mary's very nature. So much is Mary's very being full of grace that this title serves to identify Mary in place of her own name. It is also true that no person with a fallen nature could possess a fullness of grace, a plentitude of grace, appropriate only for the woman who was to give God the Son an identical, immaculate human nature. Mary was conceived in providence to be the woman who would give her same immaculate nature to God when God became man. At the very least, we can begin to reason a continuity or maybe a fittingness in God receiving a human nature from a human mother and receiving an immaculate nature from a truly immaculate mother. Brothers and sisters, God rolled up his divine sleeves and with the Blessed Virgin Mary created his masterpiece. That's not me. That's Luke 128. Because in the Greek text in Luke 128, we have an additional insight, reference to Mary's immaculate conception taking place before the announcement of the angel. The Greek word there is kekaritomene. It is a perfect participle. And so we translate Luke one twenty eight most accurately in this way. Hail, you who have been fully graced. The Greek translation of the angel's greeting refers to an event of profound grace experienced by Mary. My dear friends, that has already been completed in the past. Kekaritomene is a perfect participle, an action completed in the past. We have to examine this for what it is. You know, I taught English for five years, and a point I would often make to my students is the meaning of grammar itself. The word grammar, when you translate it, literally translates as something beautiful. Right? So if we are going to appreciate the beautiful text that is the inspired Word of God, we have to appreciate tenses, participles, imperfect preterite, I mean, all this stuff that we might remember from English class. We have to consider that as relevant to the inspired text because, well, quite simply, my dear friends, when, say, 
in this case, Luke was writing to his audience, he was very intentional in the kind of grammar he was employing and certainly in the style of writing he was writing. Very, very important. Now, all that being said, these implicitly revealed seeds of the Immaculate Conception, if they are not explicit, blossomed gradually but steadily in the sacred tradition of the church. The early church fathers, which, oh, by the way, my friends, even if you're not Catholic, they're your fathers too, right? Because there was only one Christian church before the Reformation. So they're your fathers too, and I think it's important to be reminded of that. The early church fathers referred to Mary under such titles as all holy, all pure, all together without sin. And all of these phrases you will find even within the first three centuries of the church. And since the word immaculate means without sin, then the titles used for Mary by the early fathers, such as altogether without sin, certainly contain the understanding of her immaculate nature. You know, the early church fathers would often compare Mary's sinless state as being identical to Eve's state before the participation of Eve in original sin. So you see the early Christian teachers kind of theologizing with Mary in relationship to Eve, because Mary, as the new Eve, was to be in the same state of original grace and justice that Eve was in when she was created by God, right? Since Eve was obviously conceived in grace without the fallen nature that we received due to original sin, the parallel made by the church fathers between Mary and Eve before the fall certainly illustrate their understanding of Mary's likewise immaculate nature. A very important point, and this is why theologizing is relevant. Remember, the word theology simply means, yes, the study of God, but also faith-seeking understanding, right? Faith-seeking understanding. So you meditate upon Mary where she's at in the New Testament in the light of what took place in the Garden of Eden. I love this one particular quote from St. Ephraim, who died in 373. Those two innocent women, Mary and Eve, had been created utterly equal, but afterwards one became the cause of our death, the other the cause of our life. So through the graces of Jesus at Calvary, Mary never received a fallen nature, but was sanctified and thereby redeemed from the first instant of her existence. Okay, so understanding Mary's immaculate nature is imperative to understanding the assumption. Simply put, my friends, Mary's assumption is the natural effect of her immaculate conception. The assumption is the logical effect of being preserved from original sin, since corruption of the body is an effect of what but original sin. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, they too, at the end of their earthly life, could have been assumed in heaven, right? That'd be fair game to speculate as such. Because corruption of the body is a result of, well, what does Paul tell us again in Romans chapters 5 to 8 and Hebrews chapter 2? A result of original sin. Therefore, since Mary was preserved from original sin in her immaculate conception, and since she sustained her fullness of grace given by God, Our Lady could not have experienced the fruit of original sin and the corruption of the body at the end of her earthly life. So, 
I know this might be a lot for you if you are hearing Seeds of Truth for the first time and you're wondering what the heck that Joe Holcraft talks about every evening. I'm responding to your questions. And this evening, I'm responding to your question, what are the biblical foundations to the Catholic Church's teaching on the Assumption of Mary assumed into heaven, body, and soul? There you have some very important seeds very important seeds. But again, I talk about the Church Fathers also because sacred tradition is a very important part of this witness. If you're a Christian, they're your fathers too, right? because they were the first Christian teachers. I always encourage anyone I'm in conversation with to read the Church Fathers because they afford us a beautiful witness into what was going on in the early life of the Christian church and in which many ways has been sustained, excuse me, for over 2,000 years. Now, there is also another very important passage, and I'm going to go to my Bible here and turn to Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 1. If you want to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, and, and I think I'll just read verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, the woman of Revelation 12, is this the church as some would identify? Well, it's the church, but also an individual person, Mary, the mother of the Messiah. And as John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27 reminds us, our spiritual mother too. Yes, the woman is clearly the church, endowed with the word of the Father whose brightness outshines the sun. Like the moon, she is adorned with heavenly glory, and her crown of twelve stars points to the twelve apostles who founded the church. But, my dear friends, this particular vision does speak to Mary, the mother of our Savior, depicting her in heaven, not on earth, as pure in body and soul, as equal to an angel, as one of heaven's citizens, as one who brought the incarnation of God. You know, the, both the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption should have us considering, well, one of those stock phrases that I mentioned from the Church Fathers, she who is all holy, she who is totally without sin, she who is pure. I want to close this evening with amusing on Mary's purity specifically as it applies to, well, something that I have talked about before, the great beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. To be pure in the Greek kathados means to be without mixture, to be one thing, to be single-hearted, to be single-minded and to be single-hearted. Brothers and sisters, there never lived another man or woman here on earth that was so single-minded like that of Mary. We read in the Annunciation, we read of this exchange, this dialogue between Mary and the angel Gabriel. She is initially troubled by this news. huh? She's not filled with the same overwhelming anxiety that Zechariah was, who reacted and doubted. No, she was troubled, and so she took stock in what the angel said. She considered The Greek word, therefore, consider the meaning of this great angelic salutation, best translates as dialogue. 
it's a Greek word that means to enter into an intense dialogue. So you can imagine Mary having this very intense dialogue with the God of history, who has now entered into human history with this great invitation to become the mother of God. She considered. And was she double-minded? Remember what we have been talking about over this past week. When you see the word doubt in the New Testament, the Greek rendering of doubt best translates as double-minded, to be double-minded on something, right? To be duplicitous, to not be able to just decide. Mary sought to better understand. She questioned, yes, but not in that secular sense of doubting like Zechariah did. No, she questioned in, well, (laughs) the truest sense of what it means to question, to seek to understand. The word question literally means to seek, right? Didn't I just define theology as faith seeking understanding? Mary was seeking understanding. And how did she seek to understand? But by entering into this very intense dialogue, she was pondering this extraordinary encounter between her and the angel and what this would entail. She was all pure. She could do it like no other. She could consider, ponder, keep in her heart the things of God like no other. And this is what she did. I love the reflection that comes to us from St. Bonaventure when the angel greets Mary and before Mary responds to the angel Gabriel, there was this pregnant pause in heaven. There is this, (gasps) and when Mary said yes, there was this, this exhale. Why? Because Mary could have said no. And Mary understood deep in her heart that I would only begin to be the person that God was calling me to be if I entered into this invitation. And here, my friends, I muse with this annunciation because I think here is where we find why she is the model disciple. This utter abandonment, this utter surrender. Oh, by the way, (laughs) when she says, let it be done unto me, when you translate that Greek, that is not some passive response. In point of fact, it is very active. The Greek has this mood of joyfully desiring to do something. Do we joyfully desire? I think sometimes we surrender to God, but we don't do it with joy. Mary comes full circle. The angel Gabriel greeted Mary with what? The word rejoice. Rejoice, O highly favored one, or hail full of grace. You get those two different renderings because the Greek root there is charis. Charis is the same word for both joy and grace. And so Mary beautifully closes out this conversation with those great words. Let it be done unto me. And what do we read next? The angel departs. Amen? (laughs) Amen. All right, let's close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of your mother to us. We are a spiritual family, and every family needs a mother. And so we turn to her as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen, and God bless you. 
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.